Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words and thank you that by your spirit you speak to us today through it. We pray that whether these things are familiar to us or we're just beginning to look into them for ourselves, we pray that you'd open the eyes of our hearts so that we might understand. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. How do you strengthen a church? How do you strengthen a church? It's an important question to ask for any organisation. A new manager at a struggling football club. A prime minister seeking to level up. Economists trying to reduce inflation. A new head teacher in a failing school. How do you strengthen an organisation? It's the sort of subject the media dissect all the time, isn't it? Parents discuss it at the school gate. Fans get animated about it on the way to or from a game. How can the organisation that you are invested in, how can it get stronger? The the, the organisation, the group of people that you feel passionate about, how can it be strengthened? And it's an equally important question to ask about the church. How can we play to our strengths? How can we address our weaknesses? What strategies should we have to be stronger in the future? Our passage today gives us an insight into how Paul thought about questions like those for this church in Rome. And his answers provide us with principles that we can put into practice today. If you were here last week, you'll remember that Paul began his letter to the church in Rome by reminding them of the awesome responsibility that God had given to him. He says, I am an apostle. I'm a messenger of God to proclaim the gospel. And we thought a lot about what the gospel is. We thought God's good news announcement about his son, Jesus Christ. And we thought about how that means Jesus, the crucified Galilean Jew, the promised son of David, the king, has been raised from the dead and he is the Lord of the universe. And we we thought about how the message of the gospel invites us to obey Jesus and, and how it encourages us to believe in Jesus and how it is for all people everywhere, all the time. Now, Paul wanted the church in Rome to be really clear on things like that, the facts. But he also knew that it wasn't enough just for these Christians to know the facts about the gospel. They needed to be strengthened by the gospel. And so in our passage today, if I can massively oversimplify as we begin, he moves from facts to feelings, and then briefly back to facts again at the end. I wonder if you noticed that as the passage was read. His language is quite emotional, isn't it? He is passionate with them. He shares his heart and his motivation for them. And he does that because he wants to strengthen them. He doesn't write a strategic review of their ministry, but he lets them in on his own heartfelt plans and his prayers. And clearly he wants his passion to rub off on them. And so may it rub off on us as well. Uh, If you're a regular here at this church, we need to know how, not, we don't just need to know the gospel, the facts, we also need to know how the gospel can and should strengthen us. What does it look like in practice for that to happen? And what part do our feelings have in the process of strengthening? And if you're new or visiting today, it's good for you to know these things as well. Why does this church do things this way? What makes them tick? What are they aiming for? How do they plan to get there? We're going to work through these verses just in three short sections, and each one describes something that Paul is doing and uh, something that he is passionate about, committed to. Each is going to help us to strengthen 
our church, both in, in what we feel, or how we feel, and what we do. First of all, verses 8 to 10, uh, Paul's prayer. Paul's prayer. Verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. Now, Paul has never visited this church, but he has certainly heard of them. It's a truly remarkable thing. At the very heart of the Roman Empire, the centre of emperor worship, there are followers, worshippers of Jesus. Now, that is not covered by the Roman news networks, but the news spreads anyway. Paul hears about their faith, and he thanks God for them. I wonder if that is something that we do regularly in our prayers. Are there Christians we've never met, but for whom we give thanks? An easy way to do that, let me suggest, would be to pray for our mission partners and for the people they're serving. We often pray on a Sunday for one mission partner, but could you make a habit of doing that in your own prayers? That's why in the church email this week, there was a link to two different prayer letters, to Donald and Becky in Mexico and to Margot in Tanzania. Many people here will know those people already, but you probably don't know the people they're working with. Uh, Some people here will never have met them, But wouldn't it be wonderful if just a few of us, maybe, a few more of us, clicked on that link and signed up to their prayer letter, and they would be delighted to know that you're praying for them, people you've never met, but praying for them nonetheless. I know how easy it is to forget to pray for Christians who aren't in my daily life. We start off with good intentions, and then they quickly move down the list as other things become more pressing. Wouldn't it be good for us to be a church full of people praying for people, giving thanks to God for people we've never met, and praying for their needs. That would be a way to grow stronger as a church. And uh, Paul then moves on from giving thanks to praying for something practical, not for them, first of all, but for himself. Verse 9. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you, in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. You see, just in case some in Rome are feeling a little bit miffed that the great apostle hasn't yet decided to visit Rome, Paul reiterates his genuine concern for them. God knows. God is his witness. He has been praying to visit this church for a long time. You get the sense he's quite frustrated about that, don't you? But still, he brings those frustrations to God in prayer and he trusts that God is in total control. You see, he says, now, at last, by God's will, there's frustration and there's trust in his prayer. This is an important thing, I think, for us to remember in, in our prayers. The Bible says to us we can bring all our feelings, all our frustrations to God in prayer. It tells us that prayer is wrestling, it's hard work. But it also promises that God answers prayer, that he hears us. And yet, as Jesus prays in the Lord's Prayer, everything we pray is under that banner of your will be done. And so we hold these two, tr- these two th- truths in tension when we pray. On the one hand, we know that prayer changes things. On the other, we know that God is absolutely sovereign over everything that happens in his universe. And somehow, God uses our prayers to answer or to accomplish his plan. And so Paul prays, now at last, by God's will, 
It's a wonderful example of holding those two things in tension in prayer. Giving thanks to God for their faith, longing for a personal visit, and yet trusting that God's will be done. So why is he so keen? Though? Why does he really want to go to Rome? It's not just to get a postcard. So it's time to turn to the, the, the heart of the section, verse 11 uh, to 15. Paul's plan. Paul's plan. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. Every time I arrive at church and I walk through that porch, I think, how much longer until this, ch- this porch is rebuilt? I wonder if you ever feel like that. Wouldn't it be wonderful? The day the builders arrive and they, they dig some foundations and they rebuild the pillars and they fix everything in concrete and they, they secure it together. Well, Paul was regularly involved in that kind of building work in his ministry as an apostle, but not with physical churches, but with churches of people. He, he planted churches and then he revisited them to strengthen them and establish them and fix them and secure them. And that is why he wants to go to Rome, to do exactly that kind of work. But just before he, he tells them more about that, he adds a little bit of a diplomatic kind of disclaimer. You notice this in verse 12. He says, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. It's almost as if he, he's di- dictating his letter to his scribe and he just checks himself. And he thinks, hang on, that's going to sound a little bit aloof, um, a bit tactless. After all, I didn't plant this church and I haven't actually visited them yet. Tell them that I want us to be mutually encouraged together in our faith. And Paul knows, you see, that when he strengthens this church, the strengthening will flow both ways. They will strengthen him as well. His visit will be spiritually beneficial in both directions. I wonder if you've ever experienced that kind of mutual encouragement. Maybe you visited a friend's church. Maybe you attended a church on holiday. Perhaps it was in a conversation you had before church or after church or in your small group. You spoke about your faith, someone spoke about their faith, and somehow you were spiritually encouraged, mutually strengthened together. It can be hard to to put your finger on exactly what has happened, but you know it has happened. Uh, Verse 11 uh, is often a prayer I pray before I visit someone in my role as as a pastor. I pray that God would give me something to say, to strengthen someone in their faith, to build them up. But more often than not, I leave that meeting having experienced verse 12 as well. I thought I had something good to say to strengthen them, and hopefully I did. But usually the blessing returns to me as well, and I find that there's mutual encouragement. I wonder if you could um, put that part of Paul's plan into practice in your own life as you prepare to arrive at church, as you walk through the door at home group, as you call a Christian friend, as you chat to somebody after church together. Can you make it your desire to have a, some sort of spiritual gift to impart, to strengthen somebody? Uh, because if you do, you will often find that the blessing flows back to you as well. That is what Paul is looking forward to on this trip to Rome, strengthening and mutually encouraged. But as part of that, and as part of that, he also wants to see real, concrete, physical, practical results. Verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I plan many times to come to you, 
but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. Paul wants this visit to be fruitful. He wants a harvest. And towards the end of the, the letter, he returns to this language of harvest and fruit, and he tells them what, it, what specifically that involves. It involves their supporting him on his missionary journey to Spain. So maybe that means accommodation for a few weeks whilst he gathers a team. Maybe it means the, the travelling companions who might go with him. Maybe it means money. Maybe it means prayer. Because the fruit of his labour isn't just some mystical, hard to sort of put our finger on spiritual encouragement. It is real action as well. Hard work that, get thing, that gets things done. But how does this strengthening happen? What are the seeds that need to be sown in order to bring this fruit about, this harvest about? Paul tells us finally in verses 14 and 15 where he reaches the punchline for the reason for his visit. Verse 14. I am a debtor both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. Paul wants to go to Rome to preach the gospel. It is as simple as that. The gospel is the spiritual gift he wants to impart. It is the seed he needs to sow in order to reap the spiritual harvest. He's obliged to preach it to Greeks, in other words, to the upper-class, sophisticated, educated, well-to-do, and also to non-Greeks, literally barbarians, the lower classes, the uneducated riffraff of his day. You see, the world divided people into those two categories, but he knows the gospel is for everyone, and it still is. It is for those the world considers wise and educated and intelligent and influential, and it is for those the world, the supposedly clever, considered to be stupid and ignorant and just not really worth our attention. It is for everyone. And Paul knew that he had to preach the gospel. Because ultimately, it is the gospel that strengthens a church. It is not, um, forgive me, it's a bit, a bit of alliteration. It is not programs or personalities or pounds and pence. It's not pastors or property or publicity. All those things are good things, necessary things. But a church is strengthened by the preaching of the gospel, first and foremost. And that doesn't just mean evangelistic preaching, where you're explaining the gospel to someone who doesn't believe it. It is all preaching, every week. Uh, so if you're, if you're new or visiting here and you wonder, why do they place such an emphasis on preaching? This is why. There's more to Sunday services than a sermon. But without it, it's as if you're trying to build a church without bricks and mortar. And if you wonder, why do they preach for 20 or 25 minutes, not 5 or 10? This is why. The Bible doesn't tell us how long you should preach for. But if it's gospel preaching that builds the church, then surely it's right for it to be a major part of the meeting, not a, not a sideshow. And if you, if you wonder, why do they preach like this? Why do they work through verse by verse, book by book, section by section? Well, it's because, you don't, it's because as a church, we need to hear what God thinks, not what I think or what any other pastor thinks. And so the best way to do that is to, is to look at it as God has recorded it for us and to prayerfully apply it to our lives today. Now, of course, um, 
gospel preaching doesn't just mean standing up here and me or someone else talking to you. It's not just the sermon. And it's not just the responsibility of the preacher or the pastor. That might be the main um, way, and it is the main role or a very significant role of a pastor. But in a secondary sense, we're all called to preach the gospel. We're all responsible for making sure that gospel preaching is the heart of our church. But also, in a secondary sense, we preach the gospel when we speak the gospel to each other. We preach the gospel when we sing the gospel, which is why the words of the songs are important. We preach the gospel when we talk about it together in a home group or in a a youth group or Sunday school. And we can support the preaching of the gospel by praying for it, by praying for preachers, by encouraging me and the ministry team and others in other churches to keep it central in their ministry, by giving to support gospel-sharing mission partners, by helping each other to share the gospel with our friends who don't yet believe. So this is Paul's plan for his visit to Rome, to preach the gospel. May it be our plan for our church as well. But what is it about the gospel that so convinces Paul that he, he's adamant that it's at the centre of his plan? Well, the answer comes in the last two verses where I think he moves back kind of from feelings to facts. And this is a fact he's particularly proud of. Thirdly, Paul's pride. Paul's pride, verses 16 to 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Perhaps Paul was conscious that the news about Jesus sounded foolish to some of the people of his day, but he knew that it was nothing less than the power of God to save people, to save Gentiles, those who were, sorry, to save Jews, those who were ethnically part of God's chosen people, to save Gentiles, those who weren't. Paul was proud of the gospel, and he was eager and determined to share it. In many ways, the whole letter, to the, the whole letter of Romans is, is a description of what that salvation involves. But in basic terms, I think it means two things. It means rescue from God's judgment and rescue for God's glory. Let's just look at those just briefly together from a couple of verses. First of all, um, Romans 5 verse 9. Paul says, since therefore we have been justified by Jesus' blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So the gospel saves us from God's wrath. That means his settled, perfect, terrible anger against sin. We deserve to face his judgment for all eternity, but Jesus faced it for us on the cross. And his blood, as this verse says, justifies us. It puts us right in God's sight. It restores our relationship with God. Wonderfully, the gospel saves us from God's judgment. But it doesn't just save us from something, it saves us for something. For God's glory. This is for Romans, Romans chapter 8, um, 23. Not only that, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. And the next verse says, in this hope you were saved. So the gospel saves us for this wonderful future, far better than anything we can ever imagine. We, looked, we thought a little bit about this um, the other week um, when Robin was here helping us think about uh, the, 
the topic of the evening was the Creator's Guide to Climate Change. And it was helping us to think about how we're not destined after this world for some sort of never-ending disembodied existence, but for a concrete reality, a new world. And he was helping us to see how the world we live in isn't destined for the dustbin, but for the repair shop. That one day God is going to renew it when heaven comes down to earth. And we Christians, according to Romans 8, are at the centre of that wonderful plan. That great cosmic restoration plan. Not an irrelevance, but central to it. And our bodies, he says, will be renewed along with the globe being renewed. The gospel saves us for that wonderful future for God's glory. So no wonder Paul is proud of it as he begins this letter. No wonder he says, I'm not ashamed. I want to preach it. But why and how exactly is the gospel God's power to save? Verse 17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written... The righteous will live by faith. Paul uses that little expression, righteousness of God, eight times in Romans and just once elsewhere. In many ways, it is the centre of this letter. And um, we could have a whole other sermon on it. Don't worry, we're not going to. We're we're going to have plenty of other opportunity to to come back to that phrase, especially in chapter 3. But the key thing to remember now is that the gospel reveals how God has acted in history And how he continues to work in our lives today to bring people back into right relationship with himself. No one deserves that. No one can achieve it by their own efforts. It is a gift that, as he says in verse 17, is received by faith. It is from faith from the beginning to the end. The Christian life starts with faith, keeps going with faith, ends with faith. So Paul is not ashamed to put the gospel at the centre of his prayers and his plans because he knows that only the gospel received by faith can strengthen the church. You see, then there may be many reasons for us to be ashamed of the gospel. Not least as our culture drifts further and further from its Christian moorings. In the past, the gospel was kind of assumed by many people with some sort of Christian background. And maybe that assumption kind of gave way to ignorance uh, as the gospel kind of became an idea that is a bit antiquated, a bit irrelevant, a bit out-fashioned, old-fashioned. But more and more, God's message about Jesus Christ, Lord of all, the Saviour, isn't just viewed as quaint or old-fashioned, it's viewed as dangerous and damaging. And the pressures on us to water it down, to ignore it, uh, will be stronger as the years go by, I think. But Paul was proud of the gospel. We need to be proud of the gospel too because it is the only message that saves people. So how is a church strengthened? It is strengthened by gospel facts and gospel feelings. That is the vision that Paul presents to this church as he begins this letter. He says the gospel facts can't be changed, so don't be ashamed of them. The good news that Jesus, the crucified Galilean Jew, is the Christ, the promised king, now by his resurrection from the dead, is the Lord of the universe. That news is God's news that saves people from judgment for glory. But gospel facts generate gospel feelings. And so Paul is passionately committed to this church. He thanks God for them. He prays for them. He wants to go and visit them. He plans to preach the gospel confident 
that it will encourage both them and him. It will sow the seeds for a tangible harvest. It will be the gift that makes them strong. So what about us today? Are we committed to the strengthening of our church? Will we pray for it? Will we plan for it? And most importantly, will our pride never be in ourselves or anything that we accomplish, but in the gospel, which is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes? Should we bow our heads and pray? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us the gospel. We thank you that it is your power to save us. And we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to, to, to pray about it, to plan for it to be at the heart of our life, to preach it in all sorts of different ways. And we pray this, that we as a church might be strengthened to share that gospel with others and to build each other up in it. And we pray this ultimately for Jesus' sake. Amen.